Well, good evening, brethren. Hope you all had a good week. The hope of the resurrection is such an important topic that it should make us immovable from God's way. After explaining, Paul, after he explained that without that hope, the gospel would be in vain, Paul shows that also shows that there were many witnesses, including himself, of Christ's resurrection. And then he says that Christ was the first to resurrect from the dead, and we, God willing, uh, will follow at his coming. This is a hope beyond our death, so great that should motivate us daily to die daily as it says in first corinthians 15 verse 31 right at the end it says i die daily that is it should motivate us to continuously desire to be overcoming our our difficulties and our stresses it should really motivate us that daily overcoming our carnal minds daily i would Personally, I would probably venture to say that we need to keep this great hope in mind continuously, probably much more than we will actually do. The reason I say that is it would give us extra motivation to overcome with God's Holy Spirit our problems overcome daily so so it's a, an important point for us to keep that in mind continuously and, and this is what paul is saying in first corinthians 15. now he, he addresses a question that was asked uh, by the brethren in corinth with what body are we resurrected and obviously we're talking about the first resurrection, resurrection to spirit beings. And Paul explains like a seed has to die before a new plant comes up. Likewise, our human bodies, our human body has to die in order has to corrupt, to decay, so that a new incorruptible body may be raised at his second coming. We're going to talk a little bit more about that incorruptible body uh, in a little moment but um, in verse 42 in verse 42 which is a verse we read last time i just want to uh, bring it up uh, raise it up again or mention it again so also is the resurrection of the dead the body the body is sown in corruption it is raised in incorruption the word corruption is tara, which has been subject to decay, destruction, perishing. It is raised in incorruption, which is a word called aphasia, uh, G861. The one in corruption is G5356, which is incorruptible, uh, raised in incorruption, which is incorruptible, perpetuity sometimes translated as sincere so our human body of physical life when we die will decay uh, our human body in fact over as we age is 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 in a sense um quote unquote we just say getting older but it's decaying uh, already but once it's in the ground it will completely decay and it will be raised as a spirit being for perpetuity now as i said we stopped in verse 44 so let's now read verse 45 that's where we start from today and so it is written the first man adam became a living being the first man adam became a temporary living being uh, we live for a specific amount of time 
uh, a period of time, which is temporary, it's a temporary life, right? The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. In other words, he gives us eternal life. Now we know in John 1 verse 4, let's look at that very quickly. John 1 verse 4. It, it says, it reads, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. So he has life. He, he, and look at it. Uh, look at John 5, verse 26. John 5, verse 26. John 5, verse 26 says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, our ears, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So the Son, now resurrected, has life in himself. John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Very pertinent. There is no other way for eternal life but through Christ. Christ is the truth. Basically meaning he never lies, is absolutely always the truth. There is no hiding anything or twisting anything. And we human beings, how many times people hide something and to hide something, they end up not speaking the truth. So it is Christ is the truth and the life. So uh, Christ is the way, is the one that is going to give us life. Uh, at First John chapter 5, First John chapter 5. First John chapter five, just did there. First John chapter five, verse eleven to thirteen. First John chapter five, verse eleven through thirteen. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So we're going to inherit eternal life. But this life in, is now in his son, and he's going to give us the same life, life eternal. He who has the son has life, and he who does not have the son does not have life. So we have that potential, if we remain faithful to the end, to have eternal life through the son. Uh, verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. We have that seed of eternal life, which is God's spirit in us, and provided we don't turn our backs, he will always honor his promise. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And therefore, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, we, we were reading here in verse 45, the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam, which is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Now, look. let's look again at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So through the first man, Adam, came death. Through the first uh, spiritual Adam, that's Christ, it says, also comes the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive so when we read in verse 45 that uh, the lost adam which is christ 
became a life-giving spirit. In a sense, we could say that the first Adam, Adam himself, is a death-giving man. So we got, we, we, we came alive uh, because God gave us life, but through Adam, all die. So because of that, by comparing that Christ is a life-giving spirit, then Adam, even though became the first person alive, because of God gave it to him, he is the one that gave us or gives us death. Let's continue verse 46 and 47. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man, that's Adam, was of the earth, uh, made of dust. And the second man, that's Christ, is the Lord from heaven. So, yeah, is a very interesting point. Is the Lord from heaven? Now, we know the Lord, the word Lord in Greek is kurios, which is Lord, right? But yeah, there's a subtle implication. Um, and it, it is important for us because he's the Lord from heaven. So what do you mean the Lord from heaven? Uh, they were talking in very probably Aramaic or even Hebrew. And when you translate to Greek, uh, the word Yahweh is translated as kurios. Let me give you an example of that being the case. In Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45, verse 5, Isaiah 45, verse 5. Let's read that, 45, verse 5, Isaiah 45, verse 5. It says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah or YHWH, the tetragram, because it's capitalized, and there is none other. There is no God besides me. So that is the tetragram uh, that is uh, Hebrew word 3068. The interesting thing is in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of which one of those versions was existing at Christ's time. In that Greek uh, version or translation of this verse 5, the word there, which is in Hebrew, uh, Yahweh or Jehovah or YHWH, that word in Greek is the word kurios. And so the, in the Greek language, that word was translated as kurios. Now, if you read a little further in Isaiah 45, look at verse 23. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. To me, every knee shall bow. Now, keep. And, and, and who is it talking? Yeah, you can see that uh, even on verse 21 says, have, I, have not I the Lord? There is no other God besides me, just a just God and a Savior. Look to me. I am the God, there's no other. So this is very much like in Isaiah 45, verse 5. Uh, which is translate when it says Lord in Septuagint is translated as kurios. But as I mentioned here in verse 23 of Isaiah 45 says, to me every knee shall bow. Look at how that is quoted in Romans 14. Romans 14 verse 10 and 11. Romans 14 verse 10 and 11. It says, But why uh, do you judge your brother? 
or why do you, do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. That's clearly a quote from Isaiah 45 verse 23. And it's saying it's the judgment seat of Christ. So in this case, the Lord, uh, God, yeah, is referring to Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. It says, it's talking about Christ. If you read in verse 5, let us mind be new that was in Christ. Verse 6, that he was in the form of God and was equal with God in the form, in the kind of being. And then in verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. So he came down as a human being. Uh, verse 8, he humbled himself to be obedient to the point of death at the cross. And therefore, verse 9, he's highly exalted. Um, and then verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and, on, and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, again, the Greek here is kurios, but we've seen by looking at Isaiah verse uh, chapter 45, it's referring to Yahweh. So Jesus is basically, because they were talking in Aramaic or Hebrew, uh, although it's translated here into Greek, and it's, it's, it's uh, what they said, so the manuscripts are in Greek, the Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek, and so it uses the word curious. It is very possible I believe that what they were speaking about is that Jesus is the Lord Yahweh it, and that and 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 that is not an insult to the Father because it says to the glory of God the Father it's like if you and somebody speaks well or good words about your son in a sense you as a dad feel good about that so it's not taken away from the father so let's continue then reading now in uh, verse 48 and 49 of first corinthians 15 as the man of dust uh, as was as was the man of dust so also are those who are made of dust and as is the heavenly man note that the word man is in italics so also are those who are heavenly <laughs> verse 49 and as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man again being in italics so the image of the heavenly, we, we are not yet of the same composition because we are of physical composition. We're not of spiritual composition. In Genesis 1 verse 26 and 27, <coughs> I don't have to turn there, you probably know it off by heart, but it says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. So, yes, uh, we are of the humankind and we already are in the image of God. In other words, we look like God. 
We've got two eyes, a mouth, a nose, two ears. We look like God as physical beings, like a replica, but not in composition and not in character. We shall be like God, like the heavenly. We shall bear that full image when we have the composition and the character of God, or put it in other ways, of Christ. Now, today, you and I are developing God's character. We are developing God's image as far as character. At the resurrection, we will then bear not only the character of God, but also the composition of God will be spirit beings. In Romans 8, verse 17, Romans 8, verse 17, it reads, and if children in heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. We are going to inherit God. We're going to be in his family, heirs of God. In 1 John 3, verse 2, 1 John 3, verse 2. In fact, this is one of the great scriptures of hope. In 1 John 3, verse 2. Uh, well, let's start reading in verse 1. Be all what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us then we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it does not know him. I mean, you go to the feast, nobody knows who we really are. And if we were keeping Christmas, oh, everybody would know that. <coughs> I beg your pardon. But keeping God's, God's laws and things, nobody knows us. This is now these. So they but verse 2, beloved, now we are the children of God. Why are we now the children of God? Because we've been begotten of God by God's Holy Spirit. We are the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, today. But it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We're still not of that spiritual composition of the heavenly. But we know that when he is revealed, that's Christ, we shall be like him in composition and in character okay we're developing the character now and we will be granted that full character and composition at the resurrection because we shall see him as he is so it is a great hope that we have a great hope so let's continue now reading in first corinthians 15 we read verse 49, so let's now read verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. As long as we are physical human beings, flesh and blood, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the, let me explain something that sometimes people get a bit confused. Sometimes people say, the people in the world tomorrow will be in the kingdom. Probably more accurate should be the people in the world tomorrow will be ruled by those beings that are in the kingdom of God. So yes, they will be in the, under the government of the kingdom, but the physical human beings in the world tomorrow, that is, in the millennium, are still not in the kingdom of God. Why? Because those physical human beings in the millennium are still flesh and blood. Although they will be living under the rule of the kingdom of God. So in that sense, you could say, well, they are in the kingdom because they are under that kingdom rule, but they're not yet 
in the kingdom, technically speaking, because they have not yet inherited the kingdom of God because they are flesh and blood. Right. Uh, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Here is another mystery. Another thing, another hidden truth. We shall not all sleep. In other words, those of us, some of us that are living at the time of the end will not die before Christ comes. You'll be alive. And those will be changed. So all the ones that have died in Christ, as it says in uh, verse 23 of First Corinthians 15, those who are Christ's at his coming, so those that are Christ, that died in Christ, will be resurrected, changed to spirit being. But those that are at that moment that are still alive, they will not resurrect because they're still alive, but they will be changed to spirit beings. Those that have God's Holy Spirit and those that have been overcoming and that God, according to his decision, according to his judgment, they're ready, mature, ripe to be changed. So at the last trump, this is in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. It's very important to understand it'll be at the last trump, at that very last trumpet of the seven prophetic trumpets. We're not talking about trumpets that are blown uh, at different times of the year or uh, every month or on the Sabbath. That We're talking about the seven prophetic trumpets. You know, in Revelation 11, verse 15, tells us when that last trump will sound, that last prophetic trumpet, that seventh angel, Revelation 11, verse 15. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. That's that seventh trumpet. You see, we got seven seals, then we got seven trumpets. Then this last seal opens up into seven trumpets. And the last trumpet, which it's the event symbolizing Christ's coming, and that trump is the resurrection. That event consists of a number of sub-detailed things that will happen. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going to happen in that time period. And I'm not saying it's going to be one hour or two hours or five hours or 24 hours. It probably will be more, maybe, maybe 50 hours, maybe 70 hours. I don't know. But there will be a number of things that will happen at that event, which is Christ's coming. That's what it says. And that says, that's when the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and it shall reign forevermore. That, that's when Christ's going to start taking rule of the world. But yeah, there's various things that he will do. Because in verse 18, lists those things in, in basically three main, main things that he will do. Because he says the nations are angry and your wrath has come that the time of the dead and the time of the dead that they should be judged. That's the first thing. The dead others that are dead will be judged. What does it mean? Is that some of the dead will be judged to be resurrected in the first resurrection. Some of the dead will be judged or God will decide to keep them sleeping for another thousand years. So it's the time of the dead that will be separated. Some will be resurrected because they are Christ at that time and others will wait longer. That is the number one set of sub-activities that will happen. The second one, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. In other words, those who fear your name, small and great. It's the time of 
not only receiving eternal life, but it's a time of rewarding them. And so they will be like a rewarding uh, ceremony. It says, okay, you have this job and you have that job and, and you should reward your, your servants. And thirdly, you should destroy those who destroy the earth. And so those nations, when they see this Christ in, this, in the skies and in the clouds and saints resurrect to the clouds, they then, and, and that is the moment that it opens up the seven lost plagues, and you can see from the seven lost plagues, there are various things that happen, and one of them is the nations gather, the physical nations gather to fight Christ. And so that will take some time, and they'll gather, but it will not won't be a long time, because uh, all the nations are fighting, etc., etc., they all, it's just, yeah, invasion from outer space, we got to, react quickly so and then they'll turn towards christ and then christ will then destroy them so that says and should destroy those who destroy the earth so uh, the point that i want to emphasize though is that the last trumpet this time of the sounding of the last trumpet that's when the resurrection takes place that's what we read in verse 52, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That is at that moment of the trumpet sound. And, and we know the seventh trumpet then opens up into seven lost plagues. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality now at this moment i want to talk a little bit about these words corruption incorruption and immortality and that's why i started today's study by referring to uh, verse 42 because in verse 42 says the body is sown in corruption and it is raised in incorruption. And yeah, again, in verse 53 says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And it's important that we take a little bit of time to focus on these words. So let there are three Greek words that we need to consider. One is um, related to uh, incorruptible. Uh, and the other one uh, related to uh, immortality. So let's look at these words very carefully. And, um, and they are actually two related to incorruptible. Um, so let's just look at the first one, which is G862 Afartas, which is an adjective, uh, incorruptible or immortal. Uh, it's used in a number of places. And I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. So you might want to make a note to actually uh, study them more carefully a little later. So the first one we're Afartus is used, which is incorruptible. Uh, Greek word 862 is in Romans 1 verse 23. And it reads, And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. In other words, so those, these false leaders, religious, they change the glory of God, which is incorruptible. That is the word uh, or uncorruptible, which is the word 862. Uh, another one is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. says, And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible, again incorruptible, which is 862, which is a crown that does not 
corrupt, which is incorruptible. Uh, another example is verse 52, which is this uh, uh, verse that we uh, just read, um, verse 52, and also verse 53, which we'll talk about uh, at the end. But verse 52, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Again, it will not corrupt, incorruptible. Then we have, uh, we're skipping at this moment, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53. So uh, let's uh, move on to uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible. The word immortal, it's G, a Greek 862 again. Uh, which is translated elsewhere as incorruptible. It, it yeah, in First Timothy one seventeen was translated as immortal, but it's the same Greek word that has been consistently being translated as incorruptible. So God is uncorruptible. Okay, it's translated yeah as immortal. First uh, Peter one verse four uh, says to an incorruptible, I beg your pardon, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. So our inheritance, what are we going to receive, is going to be incorruptible again. And that's 1 Peter 1 verse 4, again, G, uh, Greek 862. 1 Peter 1 verse 23 says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God. So it's talking about God's Holy Spirit, and it's a seed that's incorruptible, that doesn't decay through God's promise, the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then we have 1 Peter 3 verse 4, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great, great price. So, we need to change our hearts uh, in a way that which is something that will not be corruptible that will have god's character all right so that is the first greek word which is an adjective which is incorruptible 862 the second greek word is 861 so it's very close to 862, it's 861, which is a farsia, which is all, but it's a noun. The previous one was an adjective. This is a noun, which is also incorruptible uh, for perpetuity, sometimes translated sincere, but the basic meaning is incorruptible. Again, like uh, 862, which is an adjective, 861, is also incorruptible now it's a noun examples is romans 2 verse 7 to them who by patient continues in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality so in this case was translated immortality but again the word has this basic meaning of incorruptible in first corinthians 15 verse 42 i made uh, reference of that right at the beginning as I mentioned says yeah so is the resurrection of the dead it is sown in corruption that is uh, perishable corruptible it is raised in incorruption uh, so it is sown in corruption g uh, greek 5356 but it is raised in incorruption greek 861 and then the other one is now, uh, well, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, it says, Now I say, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption, uh, Greek 5, 3, 5, 6, the same one, same word as in verse 42, neither does corruption inherit incorruption, uh, which is this word 
aphasia, which is uh, incorruption. So, and then we have uh, Ephesians 6 verse 24, also using this word, uh, 861, which is um, aphasia, but he has translated as sincerity. Uh, which is a word which is uh, incorruptible, perpetuity, and he says sincerity, implying more like undying love. So he says, grace be with all men, that's Ephesians 6 verse 24, uh, grace be with all, men, all, all them that love our Lord Jesus in sincerity, in other words, in undying love. Amen. And then 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, Again, he uses the same word, G, uh, Greek, 861, for, for um, uh, incorruptible, but now it translates as, as immortality. It says, but uh, first, uh, second Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. But again, the basic word, this 861, which is a farsia, is incorruption, which has brought life and incorruption to light through the gospel, rather translated yeah, as immortality. And Titus 2 verse 7 uh, says, All things showing himself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Again, this word 861. So I've covered two Greek words, one which is an adjective, 862, aphartas, and 861, which is aphasia. But basically, the basic meaning is incorruptible, either an adjective or as a noun, incorruptible. Although sometimes it's translated in a slightly different way. But the word that I want to emphasize, the third one, which is only used three times in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's the Greek word 110, 110, uh, which is uh, undying, immortality, everlasting. Undying, immortality, everlasting. Now, the Vines Expository Dictionary Vines Expository Dictionary uh, mentions the thing under the section of immortal. So I've got here the section of immortal. Let's see. There you are. Immortal, that section there. I'm going to share it to you um, in, uh, in a screen share. So let's see, uh, because I took a photo of that page. So for you to see, uh, Athanasia, uh, deathless, um, it's immortality in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, 54, and also 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. Uh, but there is an interesting comment here, and it says, in the New Testament, however, Athanasia expresses more than deathlessness it suggests the quality of life enjoyed as is clear from second corinthians 5 verse 4 for the believer what is mortal is to be swallowed up of life so the point i want to emphasize here is this word uh, greek 110 uh, which is athanasia which is related to uh, related to an undying or immortality is only used three times and uh, and it also suggests a quality of life which is to be enjoyed now let's look where that word is used that word athanasia now first is used right here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53. 
because that's where we stopped reading. All right, we stopped there. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And we've explained these words, corruption and incorruption, which is deteriorating, is uh, uh, corruptible, incorruptible. And this mortal must put on immortality. It's different than corruptible or incorruptible. It's immortality, which is life eternal. In other words, inherent life in himself. And not only that, is a quality of life, as Vines expresses it, a quality of life which is to be enjoyed. The other place where that word is also used is the very next verse, verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. For when this corruptible has put in on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, again, the Greek word 110, uh, athanasia, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So this immortality, which is having life eternal, inherent in us. And the third place where this word is used, this Greek 110, is in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. So let's look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. And there we read, who alone has immortality, life eternal in himself. So, and it says, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. So this is the immortality. This word is used when we are resurrected. And then we will have this immortality. Uh, so I thought this is very interesting to look at that. Uh, James Fawcett and Brown uh, says, uh, is talking about, uh, uh, and he says, yeah, in his own essence, not merely at the will of another, but it's got this in his essence life in himself so who has life in himself now the son christ has life in himself of course the father has and so uh, what it talks about yeah is that we will be raised to immortality like christ that's what we read in first thessalonians uh, 15 verse 53 and verse 54. So this is, uh, it's more than incorruption, it's immortality. It's only used in these three scriptures. So let's move on now. We read in verse 54, and we have read verse 54, but it says right at the end of verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. And so how do we get victory over death through the resurrection to eternal life, to immortality. God wants to elevate you and I to a different level of existence, to a quality of life that is so enjoyable, so pleasurable in this life eternal, but not just life eternal, life inherent in us and so you may think what is the greatest greatest pleasure that you and i may have as a human being in the human existence the greatest satisfaction the greatest pleasure that you may have well this quality will be greater than that it'll be greater than that so Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55. O death, where's your sting? O Hades, grave, where's your victory? The sting of death is what? 
is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But victory, verse 57, but thanks to God, victory, right? Thanks to God, victory is given to us through Jesus Christ. The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abiding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The victory, the suffering, the sufferings that we go through, the trials that we go through are not to be compared to the glory that will be given to us. And then we go through chapter 16, which I'm going to go through fairly quickly. Um, in chapter 16, um, chapter 16, verse 1 and 2 is probably the, the most difficult two verses of this whole chapter. Um, typically, it's cited by various churches as an instruction to have a collection on Sunday. Uh, but understand the other says now concerning the collection of for the saints it's for the saints a collection for the saints not for god not for to keep the feast but it's a collection to the brethren to help the brethren as i have orders as i've given orders to the churches of galatia so you also so you must do also in other words help the brethren that were struggling because there was a famine on the first day of the week when you go to work on the first day of the week, <coughs> go out and gather from your crops, gather fruit and save it, put it together. So when I get there, it's available. Or if you can't save it, sell it and keep that money aside. So we can, when I go there, I can take that to the brethren uh, in Judea because they were going through a difficult time. And verse on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. As, for instance, as your crops are prospering and successful, store up a little bit to give to the saints, uh, that there be no collections when I come. So that when I come, it's already all been collected. It's, you're not rushing all at the last moment when I get there. And when I come, verse 3, whoever you approve, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift your collection to jerusalem but if it is fitting that i go also they'll go with me so so if the timing is proper i will go uh with uh, those people as well so uh now uh, in acts 11 acts 11 verse 27 to through 30 acts 11 we see there is a prophecy yeah acts 11 verse 27 and 30 to 30. Acts 11 verse 27 through 30. And in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So, so yeah, we see there was a collection for the saints to help the members. As I said, uh, could be food, could be uh, grain, could be fruit, and they will collect it. In 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verse 3, it says, send your gift. Uh, it says, yeah, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3. It says, and when I come, whoever you may approve for your letters, I will bear to send, uh, I will send to bear your gift. So send the gift. It's not tithes. In Acts 24, verse 17, Acts 24, verse 17, Acts 24, verse 17, Acts 24, verse 17. We'll get there. 
treaties. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to many nations. So he says, Paul said, when he came to Jerusalem, and you know, at the end of his third, uh, third trip, when he was being accused and by the Jews, and, and then they ended up sent, he ended up going to Rome. He says, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. And so that was at the end of his third missionary, missionary trip. So we can see this uh, missionary trip, which is this section here, when he was in Corinth, he wrote this letter, and then he was going to go and travel all the way up to Philippi, to Thessalonica, and then he's going to go to Corinth. And you can see uh, when he was here, Second Corinthians was written, and then he goes back all the way through, and he goes through Troas and Assos, and then from there he goes back to Jerusalem. And that's when then, yeah, in the section in Acts 24, he's defending himself before Felix and saying, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation because they had this difficulty. Now, look at Romans 15, verse 26. Romans 15, verse 26. Romans 15, verse 26. Because here in Romans 15, verse 26, he says, um, For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia. So if you look at this map again, you can see Macedonia, yeah, which is like uh, northern Greece today, and Achaia is the area where Corinth is. So he says, For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution to the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So that's what it's talking about here in the section of uh, Corinthians. Um, uh, and, and also in 2 Corinthians refers to that as well. Look at 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 4 says, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministry to the saints. So they were going through uh, a great trial and uh, they, they were giving the gift to the saints in Judea. Look at also chapter 9, uh, chapter 9 verse 1. We, we use this, this section when we're talking about giving and offering, but uh, it says in 9 verse 1, now concerning the ministering to the saints. That was the giving of the gift that they were doing to the saints. It is superfluous for me to write to you. And then we also read in verse 5. It says, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. And also look at verse 12, still in Second Corinthians Chapter 9, verse 12. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, because as we said, there was a big famine there, uh, but it's also abounding through the many thanksgiving uh, to God. So that's what we see. It's a collection. Uh, also in verse 2, some people used to say, oh, well, this proves that uh, you are to keep Sunday, because it says on the first day of the week. Well, that was the first day of work. Uh, and they did that collection on the first day of work because they went and collect that good and their foods, etc. And that was uh, the first day of the week. And now also reading Acts 20, verse 6, Acts 20, verse 6, which is another important scripture that people use uh, about the specific topic, Acts 20, verse 6 and 7. It reads, uh, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas. So if I share the screen again for you to see this map, okay, there it is. Uh, they, re they left Philippi, and then we're coming back, and they went to Troas. Let me try and see if I can zoom in a little bit more. All right, so they went from Philippi to Troas. 
And so let's continue reading. We were reading in verse 6 of Acts chapter 20. And it says, And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of eleven bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. And then a little later, in well, continue there uh, in verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, okay, so if you count that, the way the Bible looks at it, that it's after sunset, after the Sabbath. That's the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. So they finished the Sabbath and they had like a fellowship night on Saturday night. And Paul, ready to depart the next day, which would be in Sunday uh, in the morning or, or sometime during Sunday, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight, until midnight, Saturday night, what we call so we can see that's an anniversary. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. You know the story about this man that fell asleep and fell down and things like that. And then, uh, uh, and and so that's another scripture that they use uh, to prove uh, or to allegedly prove a point which is not really there. So let's continue in First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter sixteen. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, 4 through 8. Uh, we read 4, so 5 through 8. Now I'll come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I'm passing through Macedonia, and it it may be, as we saw, as we see in this map, uh, that you come to them as he passes through Macedonia, then you'll go to Corinth. So, uh, all right, so that it, that it may be that I will remain or even spend winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you uh, now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I'll tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, there were Gentiles. Why would he be talking to Gentiles about Pentecost, to a Gentile church, unless they were keeping the holy days, of course? And then he says, for a great and effective door, and that is an opportunity to preach the gospel as open to me, and there are many adversaries. So he had an opportunity to preach the gospel. And then in verse 10 says, and if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. But why would Timothy be afraid? Because he, of his personality, he was more of a, of a tender, sensitive type person, and therefore he says, uh, uh, therefore, verse 11, therefore, let no man despise him. Look, he's a tender gentleman. Uh, he doesn't like to come strong. And so, uh, so don't, don't, don't uh, show him lack of respect, respect him. Uh, but send him, uh, therefore, let no man despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I'm waiting for him with the brethren. So, uh, and then he talks in verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. Not that he didn't want to go, but this time, as he says, however, you'll come when he has a convenient time, when it's convenient. So this was not a convenient time, but he'll come later. Then verse 13 is, is really something that you and I need to be well aware of says watch stand fast in the faith be brave and be strong let all that you do be done with love that all that you do be done with love that's very important these two verses are very important for us today we got to watch we got to stand fast in the faith we got to be brave we got to be strong and all that we do we must do it with love and then he closes I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and it was the first few that received God's Holy Spirit, and that they may have devoted themselves in the ministry of the saints. That you also submit to such and to everyone who works and, abhors, uh, and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaius, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. So they came and Probably they are part of those people that updated him about there being a fornicator, as he talks in First Corinthians chapter five, verse one. 
for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Achille and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with uh, the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. In other words, with a real, it's not just a handshake, it's a real uh, embrace as we today do in our culture. Other cultures may be different. Uh, in, in Portugal, for instance, in Brazil, but particularly in Portugal, it's more like a kiss on both cheeks. But in this country, it's more a, a hug, a nice hug, uh, the salutation with my own hands, Paul, to prove that it was authentic. If anyone does, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O oh Lord, come. We gotta love Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We can see Paul. Uh, is has a very deep respect for Jesus Christ and is a very caring, loving individual. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.